outline everything and keep myself on track with it. And you can hold me accountable to it. We're going to go through the background on Jeremiah. We're going to then go through the first uh, 11 verses with the ruined loincloth. And then the jars filled with wine. And then where God uh, threatens exile to Judah. And then his judgment. And then really the part that... uh, got me most excited was how this parallels America today. And I think as we read it, you can't help but see how this is just exactly where we are. And the good news is he, we're going to talk about what we need to do, not to repeat history. So, Jeremiah chapter 13. First of all, a little bit of background, and there's so much You could spend a whole hour just on the background, but I just want to highlight a couple things. This whole book is about the people, Judah, you know, their backsliding, the bondage, and then eventually the restoration of the Jews. And this was was, uh, written in around 627 B.C., about 60 years after Isaiah died. And uh, Josiah was the, uh, the third king of Judah. He was the last good king. Remember the cycles of good king, bad bad king. He was the last good king in Judah. And uh, during that time, Jeremiah was called at a very early age. He lived uh, north of Jerusalem in a little town that's hard to pronounce. Anathoth, I guess, is the best I can come up with. It's about three miles north of Jerusalem. And his dad was uh, uh, Hilkiah. And his dad was a well-respected priest, head of the priesthood in the city, a godly man, totally supportive of Josiah. Uh, During Jeremiah's 40 years of of, uh, prophesying, he witnessed all kinds of things, from good to happy times to prosperous times to uh, the next four kings, which were bad kings, and then we got into the invasion of Babylon and eventually the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah, as you remember, was called the weeping prophet. We're going to talk about why he was called that a little bit later, and or the strong man of Israel. Uh, he was maligned, mistreated, persecuted, imprisoned, uh, misunderstood, He was a man of God who obeyed. He did his very best to obey God. And and he is best known, I think, arguably for his introduction in the New Testament uh, of the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, rather, of the New Covenant. And in Jeremiah chapter 31 is where he introduces it. It's... uh, chapter 31, verses 31 through 33. And again, this is the first and I believe the only time that the new covenant is mentioned in the Old Testament, which is sort of interesting. And he he says, and you recognize this, this is also uh, where the author of Hebrews quoted in in chapter 8. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, And the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's working from the inside out now instead of the outside in. This uh, head knowledge that, that the people were familiar with, he's now trying to get it into the heart. And that's sort of Jeremiah's purpose all through his, his, uh, his time of serving. He wanted to get this word in their heart. I came across a, qu- a quote a while ago that, that said there's a, a big difference knowing the, the word of God and knowing the God of the word. And Jeremiah was that prophet who really wanted to get that head knowledge into the heart and have his people have a personal relationship with their God. That's pretty cool. Jeremiah was one of the greatest figures historically in the Bible, uh, faithful, fearless, in the most desperate times for sure. And this first part of Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 11, 11 is, uh, talks about a, a loincloth, a, a ruined loincloth. Uh, this loincloth, uh, uh, some translation used the word girdle or um, waistband. Uh, some commentators put down that this section is, they label it the parable of the dirty underwear, which is sort of interesting. And as we read it, you'll see why, where the dirty underwear part comes in. But uh, the loincloth was that thing that was worn around the waist, the small of the back. Uh, it it uh, protected the uh, most private, intimate parts of, of a person. Uh, and sometimes this particular, in this chapter, it's made of linen, uh, meaning a very fine, finely refined piece of cloth. They also had one made of leather that they used in battle. This first part of Jeremiah 13 is very symbolic as we read it. See if you can catch the symbolism here and how it applies. So, starting in verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 13, and this is the Living Bible. The Lord said to me, go and buy a linen cloth, a linen loincloth, And wear it, but don't wash it. Don't put it in water at all. So I bought the loincloth and put it on. Then the Lord's message came to me again. This time he said, take the loincloth out to the Euphrates River and hide it in a hole in the rocks. So I did. I hid it as the Lord told me to. Then a long time afterwards, the Lord said, go out to the river again and get the loincloth. And I did. I dug it out of the hole where I had hidden it, but now it was mildewed and falling apart. It was utterly useless. Then the Lord said, this illustrates the way that I will rot the pride of Judah and Jerusalem. This evil nation refuses to listen to me and follows its own evil desires and worships idols. Therefore, it shall become as this loincloth, good for nothing. 
Even as a loincloth clings to a man's loins, so I made Judah and Israel to cling to me, says the Lord. They were my people and honor to my name, but they turned away. You know, we serve a jealous God. He wants 100% of us. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And he constantly tries to draw him to himself to give us 100% of everything. Uh, He is a jealous God. In Matthew 22, you know the the greatest commandment. commandment Jesus tells his disciples to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's number one to him, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now let's, let's look at verses 8 and 9, 8 through 10 here again. It says, Then the Lord <clears throat> said, This illustrates the way that I will rot the pride of Judah and Jerusalem. So they had, a, they had some issues. Everybody has issues. And the issues, it's really interesting, are the same then as they are now. And that issue was pride. The pride here that he's talking about, this evil nation refuses to listen to me and follows its own evil desires and worships idols. That pride that he's talking about here, uh, you know, I... At one time, I did a study on pride, and I found it to be the most mentioned sin in the Bible. It's mentioned right out over 50 times, I think 58 times. But it, it probably, I would, I would think anyways, my opinion is it's, it's probably one of the, the most uh, common sins, and maybe the root of all sin, I don't know. But it's definitely uh, a dangerous sin that... Humanity has dealt with since the very beginning. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, and perverted speech I hate. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Romans 12, uh, 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Pride. Boy, how many times does that get us in trouble? Uh, One scripture Another, another good one is 1 John 2.16. It says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Verse 11. Let's go back again and look at that. Even as a loincloth clings to a man's loins, So I made Judah and Israel to cling to me, says the Lord. They were my people and honor to my name, but then they turned away. 
Relationship with God. That's got to be number one. That's what he's constantly calling us back to him. Uh, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians uh, chapter 6 and verse 14. Speaking at Ephesus, he says, So stand firm and hold your ground, having tightened the wide band of truth. And I love the way the Amplified includes personal integrity, moral courage around your waist. We could use a shot of integrity in this country today, of courage. Third part, the jars filled with wine. The jars filled with wine. Now, what do you think the, who do you think the jars are in this? Let's read, see if you can figure it out. Tell them this, verses 12 through 14. The Lord God of Israel says, all your wine jugs will be full of wine. And they will reply, Of course, you don't need to tell us how prosperous we will be. Then tell them, that's not what I mean. I mean that I will fill everyone living in this land with helpless bewilderment. From the king sitting on David's throne and the priests and the prophets right down to all the people. And I will smash fathers and sons against each other, says the Lord. I will not let pity nor mercy spare them from utter destruction. We're the jars he's talking about here, I think. The jars, uh, you know, we are the vessel of either honor or dishonor. Uh, And here, God gives these people a cup of wrath. In Scripture, there's a number of places where it talks about God's uh, turning them over to a reprobate mind, blinding their eyes, uh, putting them in a stupor. Pretty scary stuff when we're looking at God actually denying access to the truth. Possibly, this could be the very worst kind of judgment that God could give his people is not letting them know and understand the truth. You know, as we look in the world today, some some of the stuff that we see, some of the people we talk to, um, we just can't understand where they're coming from, how they can see how they believe what they're believing or how they, why they do what they do. And I have to wonder if, you know, has God blinded their eyes, put them in a helpless bewilderment? They really, they can't. They can't see truth. Deuteronomy 29.4 says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Scary. In Romans 1, verses 25 through 28, instead of believing what they knew was the truth about God, they deliberately chose to believe lies. So they prayed to the things God made, but wouldn't obey the blessed God who made these things. That is why God let go of them and let them do all these evil things, so that even their women turned against God's natural plan for them 
and indulged in sex sin with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sex relationships with women, burned with lust for each other, men doing shameful, shameful things with other men, and as a result, getting paid within their own souls with the penalty they so richly deserved. So it was that when they gave God up and would not even acknowledge him, God gave them up to doing everything their evil minds could think of. That's scary. If God gives up on them, they cannot know, they cannot see the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion or a blindness so that they may believe what is false. Ignoring God's truth and doing whatever seems right in our own eyes is, equals disaster for us individually and surely collectively for us as a nation. So, could that be America? I think I think it could be. Uh, I read an interesting book here. I'm reading it, almost done with it. Brand new book. It's by Cal Thomas. Some of you might remember Cal Thomas. He was a very popular syndicated columnist, journalist. He was in the paper every day for years and years. Uh, he wrote a book called America's Expiration Date, The Fall of Empires and Super Empires, and the future of the United States. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sort of interested in that. You know, I we have a Wednesday night prayer meeting we go to, and we pray for the nation, and we have one another one on Tuesday nights in Twin, and and there are probably thousands of groups all across the nation that are praying for our nation. We're commanded to do so, and I think it's a good thing to ask that question. Uh, Will history repeat itself with America? I know a lot of people have their opinions of America and its founding. And, you know, we're an exceptional nation for sure, built on biblical principles. Men of God put the original documents together. Uh, But in Cal Thomas's book here, what instigated this book was a book that he read called The Fate of Empires and Search for Survival by Sir John Glubb. I'd never heard of this guy. Uh, he was an author, authored it in the 50s. And this, this book inspired Cal to write America's Expiration Date. And what, what he says, what Glubb says in his book on the fate of empires, is he found he took eight, the, great, the eight greatest superpowers... In history, and he studied the, the the rise and fall of them, and the the uh, you the eight superpowers uh, with Persia, uh, Rome, Russia, uh, all eight of them had similar patterns. 
they all they all uh, eventually. Uh, well, let me just read to you the uh, the the six stages that he found as he studied the history of each one of those nations, and they're in the book here as well. Uh, the first one is the age of pioneers. That's the first stage. The second one is the age of conquest. Then there's the age of commerce, and then the age of affluence. The fifth stage is the age of intellect. And then the sixth and last stage is the age of decadence. And, of course, uh, decadence is moral or cultural decline characterized by excessive indulgence in pleasure and luxury. And he, looking at uh, that decadence, he spends a lot of time on that. Uh, it includes things like defensiveness, pessimism, materialism, frivolity, influx of foreigners. Uh, too many, too fast, without assimilating, caused the demise of nations. The welfare state, and then, all importantly, a weakening of, of religion in nations. In Ecclesiastes 1.9, it says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. So the question we have to deal with is, America going to follow those previous eight superpowers? Well, let's see what Jeremiah tells his people in Judah, verses 15 through 23. He threatens exile. Hear and give ear, in verse 15 of Jeremiah 13. Hear and give ear. Be not proud. There is that warning again about pride. For the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. The weeping prophet My soul will weep in secret for your pride. I think that represents the real measure of hatred of sin when we actually come to a place where we weep over it. Uh, it's hard, hard for us. I mean, my reaction to it often is anger or disgust or frustration or irritation or whatever. But notice Jeremiah his response was tears. In Jeremiah 9, 1, again, it says, Oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. My eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night. In Jeremiah fourteen seventeen. You shall say to them this word, let my eyes run down with tears night and day, 
and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. The weeping prophet. He, I believe, loved the people so much and wanted to see them repent. It brought him to tears. The apostle Paul wept over sin as well in Acts chapter 20 and verse 19. Acts 20, 19. says, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. With all humility and with tears. Then in Acts 20, 31, Paul says, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then probably most importantly, Jesus wept over sin as well. Remember in Luke chapter 19, as he was entering Jerusalem, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. How devastating. How devastated are we over sin? I can't say that I've ever wept over someone else's sin or loss. But I think that's where we need to end up. I had a friend, a real good friend. Jared knows him well. Little guard. He wept. Remember Jared? Very significant in your life. He loved so much, he wept over someone that was lost. A tender, tender man. Jeremiah chapter 13. He's my hero, by the way. Lowell was a wonderful man. Jeremiah 13, verses 18 through 23. You know, like going back to that, I really believe that that's where God would have us as a nation. His people weeping for the lost. He desires brokenness, not sacrifice. Jeremiah thirteen eighteen says, Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat. Take a lowly seat. You know, everything is about vaccines now. You just hear it in and out every day long and Got to come up with a vaccine for the coronavirus, and surely that would be nice. But there's something even worse than that that we need a vaccine for, and that's pride. And the vaccine for pride is humility, to humble ourselves, to bend the knee,
and to pray, to weep. It says, take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Again, their pride has taken them into exile. Lift up your eyes, in verse 20, and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set as head over you, those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs <coughs> take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatest of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. He's saying here we can't change ourselves. We absolutely cannot hard as we try. That's the first step in the recovery program. Uh, I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. However, you know Philippians 4.13, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And then the fifth part of Jeremiah 13, verses the last part, 24 through 27, God's judgment is pronounced. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries and nayings, your lewd whorings on the hills in the field, Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Woe to you, O America. How long will it be before you are made clean? Spiritual adultery is exposed here. The lies are exposed. In Hebrews 10.31, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. It's fearful. You know, teaching God's judgment isn't that popular. It's not that, it's not that pleasant to sit and listen to this. But Jeremiah says it over and over and over again throughout his book. He warns people to repent. And they don't. And he doesn't listen. So judgment is pronounced and exile continues. There are... Some people that, uh, that believe uh, the kingdom of God is going to be escorted in to America on Air Force One, that politics is the answer. That's a quote out of Cal's book, uh, that we just have to pray in a godly president and bingo. Uh, we've come back to the roots and it's all going to work out for good, but... I obviously godly presidents are good. Godly kings were good for the people. But that's not where the answer is and that's not where our hope 
has to originate. Uh, God is the source. If we don't have a true revival of heart, the one that Jeremiah was talking about in, in chapter 31, if we don't have a circumcision of the heart, and if the people don't change within, then surely the president can't change the nation from the top down. It's got to be an internal change of heart, a transformation. So what, what should our response be? What should our response be? Well, there's many responses that we could, we could uh, talk about. I'll give you my opinion and my takeaway from this study. Obviously, we know God is sovereign. Like Jackie's been saying, calm down. It's all going to work out for good, and it will eventually. Maybe not this side of heaven, but it will. Um, one of the responses that I see all through Scripture is to bow down and worship. That's probably the response, the first response that we can do and should do. Uh, adoration, confession, supplication, thanksgiving. But what about practically? What do we do? Um, got to get up, go to work tomorrow. We got to deal with it again, turn the TV on. How are we going to handle this crisis that we're in right now? Uh, well, my gene pool, the first reaction is to worry. That's what my family does. We're worriers, and we don't need any help doing that with uh, what's going on in the news. And that's exactly what God tells us not to do, be anxious for nothing. So we need to replace it with something. We need to occupy our minds with things that are good instead. And Jeremiah chapter 29, jumping ahead, has a great exhortation to the exiles. These people that survived and, and were transported. This letter to the surviving exiles in verse 4 says, The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, sends this message to all the captives. He has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. And we could put our name in there just, just as appropriately, I think, as well. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant vineyards, for you will be there many years. Marry and have children, and then find mates for them, and have many grandchildren. Multiply, don't dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Pray for her, for if Babylon has peace, so will you. Jesus told us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to occupy to his until he, he returns. Work is surely part of it. We got to keep working, but we can't put work first. I think Jeremiah is telling us here the first thing we have to do is weep if we really want to see revival. We have to be willing to humble ourselves and bend the knee, bow down, and ask God to put in our heart his heart for the lost, for a people that have strayed, that are in idolatry, that are doing dumb stuff. You know, exile was a plan for Judah. Maybe it's the plan for America, too. Maybe we're in it right now. I don't know. But I do know that 
as Jackie said last week in Jeremiah 12, or maybe it was in his uh, uh, Sunday morning service, he said, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. I thought that was, that was my, my takeaway for that lesson. We don't fight for, for victory, we fight from victory. If we fri- fight for victory and we lose, then we're disappointed. But if we have the mind of Christ and we know we're victorious in the end, it'll be okay. The disappointment won't set in and the discouragement. The expectation is everything. We know that we're going to be victorious. In John chapter 16 and verse 33, it says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I just got a couple more scriptures, Rich, so wherever you are, you better come back. (laughs) You up here? Good. Jeremiah, the second most, it's interesting that the second most quoted, researched scripture, you know, the first one is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But the second one is Jeremiah 29. After he gives this admonition to the surviving elders, he says, and you know it well, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And FYI, that word welfare is not what they're doing, not what they're fighting over now when Congress has given everybody $1,000. That's not the welfare in Jeremiah 29, 11. That word welfare is shalom. It's peace and prosperity. And lastly, John 14, 3. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. What a hope we have. Looking past the circumstances of whatever crisis is in front of us, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, We hang on, put that loin cloth around, and stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness and all the other good stuff in Ephesians 6 that he tells us to put on, the full armor of God. Stand firm. So how are are you going to respond How did Jeremiah respond? Jeremiah wept, and then he got to work. He kept on preaching, kept on prophesying. I'm sure kept on encouraging to press on, don't give up. And we know how it all comes out in the end. Jesus is preparing a place for us. Been working on it for 2,000 years. It's going to be pretty good. A lot better than anything we can find here for sure let's pray father we just thank you that we have you lord that we have that linen loincloth that we can put on 
that we can just uh, snuggle up on your lap. We can uh, pray to you. We can cry out to you. And you are faithful to be there for us. Lord, I just want to pray especially for this time where so much is going on in this country. As Rich said a little bit ago when we started out, fear has just gone rampant, anxiety. Lord, I just pray you would speak peace. That when your people who are called by your name and and they humble themselves and they seek your face, that you would shine on them. Lord, that you would grant that peace that passes all of the understanding and all of the things that we don't understand. Lord, just bless your people. Encourage them. Lift them up. Father, I just thank you for the opportunities that you're going to give us during this time. Just as Jeremiah had so many opportunities, Father, I just thank you for the opportunity I had today in the gym to talk to a young man, to give him hope for his future. Father, fill us with your spirit. Help us to be in season, to be ready to respond with the right words and most importantly with the right heart with compassion Lord we just thank you and we love you are so grateful for what you've done for us and what you're preparing for us in the future in Jesus name Amen